Hey, North Alabama Methodist. My name is Robert Mercer, and I serve on the clergy team at Asbury United Methodist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. I'm honored to spend this time with you. Our scripture reading today comes from Acts chapter 7, verses 55 through 60. But filled with a Holy Spirit, he, Stephen, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they covered their ears, and with a loud shout, all rushed together against him. Then they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him, and the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he died. We won. This is the response I have heard more than once from people on both sides of the issue who have gone through the disaffiliation process. We've done a good job of taking a very complicated theological discussion with a number of nuances and made it an either-or, a win-lose. The problem is, when we make an issue a win or a loss, we tend to follow the culture rather than God. We all would rather consume information that bolsters what we already believe rather than authentically listening to people who may think differently. Sometimes we even dehumanize each other and attack or exclude opposing points of view. When we do this, we become a reflection of our culture that pushes people into corners rather than bringing people together. This isn't a new problem for us humans. It's plagued people throughout history. In the scripture reading today, this is going on in the book of Acts. Stephen was a deacon in this young church. Maybe this is why I resonate with him so much. I am a deacon in our conference, and from my experience, deacons are in a position to speak truth to power. Stephen had a reputation for performing miracles and for being full of the Holy Spirit. As it happens way too often, people became jealous of his gifts rather than celebrating what God was doing in his life. So they began to spread things about Stephen that were not true. This lands him in front of a council of church leaders. To be fair, Stephen did not do himself any favors. In verses 51 through 53, Stephen pokes the bear. He says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you are forever opposing the Holy Spirit, just as your ancestors used to do. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one. And now you have become his betrayers and murderers. You are the ones that received the law as ordained by angels, and yet you have not kept it. Well, instead of backtracking in front of the council to save his own neck, 
Stephen doubles down and shares a vision that he has of Jesus standing at the right hand of God. This message was so offensive that they couldn't even bear to hear it. The establishment, the church people, covered their ears. They not only refused to hear, but they rushed Stephen out and killed him. I am not a cradle Methodist. I grew up Southern Baptist. This was the place that first formed my image of God and how God works in the world. Now, Southern Baptists can have a wide diversity among their churches, much like us Methodists. For example, my home church ordained women for work in the church. This got us nearly kicked out of the Mobile Baptist Association. In fact, my grandmother, who was one of my spiritual mentors, was a lifelong Southern Baptist. I went to her house one Sunday for dinner scared to death to tell her that our church voted to ordain women. When I mustered up the courage to tell her, she paused, then calmly said, it's about time. We've been running the church for years. Southern Baptists could be theologically diverse from church to church, but typically each local church was fairly homogenous. I'd pretty much given up on a life in ministry because I knew my views on inclusiveness would be a problem in the Southern Baptist Church. Then I fell in love and married a United Methodist and found a place where different voices at the table were valued. Later in my studies, I discovered how United Methodists were able to live in harmony with people who think differently. It's our theological task. Our theological task is laid out in paragraph 105 in the Book of Discipline. This section helps guide the church in having hard conversations about how God works in the world around us. Our theological task has four main parts. First, our theological task is both critical and constructive. It's okay to ask questions about our faith. In fact, an extensive research project done by Fuller Seminary shows that people who remain in their faith in adulthood were part of churches where questions were welcomed. But our questions are not just critical, they're also constructive. We ask questions to help us understand the gospel in our time and place in history. Next, our theological task is both individual and communal. As Jesus followers, we should be people who strive to understand what Scripture is teaching us. Books, sermons, podcasts, small groups are all good, but we are encouraged to think for ourselves. And yet, we are not meant to go it alone. We are meant to have conversations with people who make up the entire theological community, not just people who think and look just like us. Third, our theological task is contextual and incarnational. We recognize that Jesus lived in a certain place and at a certain time. Jesus immersed himself in the world in which he lived in order to bring about change in how people lived their lives, and so should we. Lastly, our theological task is essentially practical. Our faith informs every part of our lives. 
It doesn't matter how much we know or believe about God if we do not let it affect how we live it out on a daily basis. I fear we have forgotten our theological task as we have lived in an increasingly polarized culture. We need to ask ourselves, are we talking and listening to each other, or are we covering our ears? Walter Brueggemann talks about how we continually go through three phases of life. Orientation, the world makes sense and times are good. Disorientation, something happens to disrupt life as we know it. And reorientation, life is different, but it's starting to make sense again, and we can enter back into a season of orientation. The United Methodist Church is going through a time of disorientation. The good news is, reorientation is always on the horizon. My concern as we journey together is how do we fill the void of the voices we have lost? Our friends who are no longer at the table as we make decisions about the future will leave us weaker. We needed their voices. I want to say something to my friends who are or have disaffiliated. Resist the temptation to feel like you have put these issues behind you. You will miss the voices calling you to care for the marginalized. My hope is that even though we are not in a relationship in a formal way, we all will uncover our ears and keep talking and listening for the ways God is calling us to change our hearts and lives. I want to close with a portion of Jesus' high priestly prayer from John 17, 20 through 23. I'm not praying only for them, but also for those who believe in me because of their word. I pray they will be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. I pray that they also will be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me so that they can be one just as we are one. I'm in them and you are in me so that they will be made perfectly one. Then the world will know that you sent me and that you have loved them just as you loved me. Amen.